Yes, Jesus, you reign for all eternity. You're powerful, and you are at work in us, giving us strength, enabling us to obey you, enabling us first to enjoy you. You satisfy every desire, every longing. In you, there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. And then you have given us each other to enjoy. Help us to grow in love for your people. And then you have said, go and make disciples. Preach the gospel. Preach repentance and the kingdom that it is here. So help us to enjoy you. Help us to enjoy one another. And then help us to share that enjoyment with others and invite them in. This is your desire. And this is your hope for your people. That we would be satisfied in you, loving one another, and inviting others in. Help us to do that through your Holy Spirit. And continue to work now. As we begin to hear your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to hear. And then give us hands to do what it says. We pray for Pastor Rick. Give him a boldness and a wisdom and a clarity that only you can give. And give him a shepherd's heart to be firm and gentle with us. God, would you work through your spirit? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. And amen. You can be seated as we continue in worship. I'm nervous, man. I'm a nervous wreck. See, the men's 4 by 100 relay, whoo, features the fastest dudes in the world. One time around the track? Sounds simple enough, right? Not for my guys. U.S. on top. Here's the baton exchange, and Tyson Gay didn't get it. And the USA is out. The stick has been dropped. If you can't get that baton exchange in the zone, you're out. Every time the red, white, and blue runs this race, this doesn't make it around. It can't hold it. It can't pass it. It's like it's cursed. We've seen this for so many years. I mean, look, it's not that hard, people. You just take this little stick, run for 10 seconds, and then you hand it to a friend. Repeat. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> what can go wrong? The Olympics is coming up this summer. And we're going to be having all kinds of events. And, and we'll be watching all kinds of different things. You know, the sad part is, will the baton be dropped again? And dropping the baton, it's devastating. And nothing could be worse in a relay, and especially in the 4 by 100 It's guys or gals running about 10 seconds. The fastest ones in the world and passing off this aluminum tube. All the years of training, the years of practice, all seem to go down the drain as you look down and you see the baton on the track. The whole team suffers, and in some cases, a nation. It seems simple, right? What could go wrong? 
Well, we're going to find in the book of 2 Timothy that Paul is passing a baton. And, and you would think after a few thousand years, we as the church should probably get it right. We should know how to do this. It's simple. What possibly could go wrong? But the truth is, the baton is dropped often in the church. We know Paul's time is winding down, and that, well, his words carry weight. Maybe a little extra weight, being it's his last written correspondence. But realistically, this letter is not about Paul or Timothy. It's about two things. Becoming the right person, a person who is worthy to receive the baton, and passing the baton. So before we start, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again in in a new year, and we open up your book. We open up your letter. We open up your words. And we would ask, God, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts. Father, perhaps those even sitting or, or hearing over the web, Lord, that maybe they've read 2 Timothy a plethora of times. And, and we look at this book and, Lord, is there anything new that you could teach us? Is there any, anything, God, that would change our lives? And the answer is, yes, there is. God, we pray that, that everyone that opens your book all the time, whenever that is, whether it be here in this building or by themselves, that, that your Holy Spirit teaches us and convicts us and changes us from the inside out. I pray, Father, that each one of us begin to look a little bit more like your son. As you chip away the things in our lives that don't bring you glory, Father, I pray that you would forgive us for not passing the baton well. We train, we learn about you, we learn the scriptures. We sometimes even applaud ourselves on how much we know. But Father, somehow the knowledge isn't passed on. Reality isn't passed on. I pray, Father, that you would help us train well, but not focus on the training. I pray you would give us a clear vision. Help us train. Help us learn. Help us understand your word. Mostly help us understand the gospel. And would the gospel just transform us and help us pass on the baton? Lord, if some of us are honest, um, your priorities haven't been our priorities. And we need grace right now. We need to be able to start fresh. Our priorities perhaps haven't been your priorities, and we haven't listened to you very well. So we pray even now that you would give us a fresh start, that you would give us the grace that each one of us need. We love you, Lord, and we expect you to do something in our lives that we can't do. We pray for those other churches, Father, not only all over the world and all over our country, but but right here in our neighborhood. We pray for connection and for new hope and for Meadowland. We, We pray, dear God, that you would be with these flocks and be with these teachers and and that we would hear well and represent you well. We pray for all the teachers and the kids downstairs and the ministries that will be happening all throughout this week, times when your word is going out, times, Father, when we're praying and gathering, times, Lord, that you will use. Help us hear. Help us respond. Father, we are grateful even to be able to meet. 
There's warmth in this building. And we pray, dear God, that you'd continue to give us grace. Help us love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, you can turn your Bibles or your flat screens to 2 Timothy. It's in the New Testament. It's actually near the end of the Bible. But in order for us to understand this letter, we need to understand its context. Who wrote the letter? Who received the letter? Why was the letter written? And what environment was the letter written? Now, again, I'm not teaching some class, but every time we open up this book, there should be those questions that come to mind. So we're not just even reading words. We're trying to understand what God is teaching us in every area. I'm so grateful for the many tools. I look back in the years that I have grown. I I came to faith, believe it or not, like around 1960. (laughs) That's really old, all right? But I look back then, I look at some of the tools we had and what I had to learn, and it's so different now. I'm so grateful for the plethora of study Bibles, for you to be able to open up this book and be able to get some of those answers, and right in the very beginning, I'm so grateful for the internet. I I know there's some negative with the internet, but... But honestly, the tools and the commentaries and the ability to be able to to study and hear and understand what God is saying to us is is amazing. The Apostle Paul, and we're going to talk just a little bit about him to understand him a little bit more, wrote this letter to young Pastor Timothy. Now, let me also remind you, especially in this text, we're going to go through some history. I'm going to mention some texts. And I just want to remind you that the full set of notes is available to everybody. Well, certainly after the message. But I usually send it out like 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning. If you would like those notes or to get those notes, just let me know or let us know. And we can send those out to you every week. You'll have a much better, I think, perspective of all the scriptures that are being used. But we are introduced to Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, in the book of Acts. We know that Saul at that time was highly esteemed. He was educated. He was passionate. And he was powerful. In Acts chapter 8, this is what's told us, or or the scripture tells us about Saul, starting at verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, well, if you read in chapter 7, Stephen the deacon was just stoned to death because he, well, talked to others about Jesus. So Saul, verse 1, was one of the witnesses. He agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul, verse 3, was going everywhere to destroy the church. That was his passion. That was his goal. And then the Bible says this. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. If there ever was anyone who you would not think respond to God, his word, his grace. Paul would be the number one candidate. The smartest guy around, the most passionate around, and his goal was to literally destroy the church, this new movement. 
These people who are following Jesus, saying that he was resurrected, saying that you can have life by putting your faith in him. In Acts chapter 9, Saul literally meets Jesus and his life is transformed. You can read that. He's on the road to Damascus. He's actually heading that way in order to kill more Christians. Jesus meets him on the road. And Jesus changes his life. The next 12 to 13 years, there's not a lot written about Saul, who eventually, again, his name is turned to Paul. But he's in uh, times of seclusion and training. We pick up his amazing story of God's grace in Acts chapter 11, when he literally goes on three missionary trips. In other words, these missionary trips are geared so that Paul might be able to share the gospel, train people in the gospel, and encourage them to pass the baton. I'm going to show you a video that we've seen before, but it's an amazing video to me. It's a little bit of a cartoon, but as you see what Paul did, you will be absolutely amazed about his passion of passing the baton. Let's watch. Paul went on three big trips. The first was around 46 AD. Look, we're drawing a line. Starting in Antioch, Paul sailed to the island of Cyprus, then sailed up to Asia Minor and visited the city of Perga, another city called Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Then he did the whole thing backwards. Lystra, Iconium, the other Antioch, Perga, then Adelaia, then sailed all the way back to Antioch, 1,400 miles. He must have used a lot of gas. But no, he was either in a boat or walking the whole way. I bet those Roman roads came in, Andy. They sure did. His next trip was much further. Around 49 AD, he walked to Tarsus, then Cilicia, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Phrygia. That sounds cold. I don't think it was. Then up to an area called Galatia, and all the way over to another called Mysia, then Troas, and then he visited Samothrace, Neopolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, then all the way down to Athens, which is the center of Greek culture, then over to Corinth, where he stayed for a year and a half, then Sankri, then back on our boat and all the way over to Ephesus, then all the way down back across the Mediterranean, all the way to Caesarea. Whoa, what a long trip. And then to Jerusalem, 2,800 miles. He must have worn out his sneakers. I think he wore out several pair of sneakers. And finally, a few years later, around 52 AD, he went on his third big trip. From Antioch, he walked all the way up through Galatia. That would make your feet sore. Then to Phrygia, and on to Ephesus, where he stayed for three years. That's a long time. Then all the way up to an area called Macedonia. Macedonia. I like that name. And back on another boat, all the way down to Corinth. Then all the way back up to Macedonia. Again? Yep, again. And then on another boat over to Troas, Assos, Mytilene, Chios, Samos, Miletus, Kos, down to Rhodes over to Patera, then once again back across the Mediterranean Sea all the way to Tyre, and down to Ptolemaeus, Caesarea, and finally back to Jerusalem again, another 2,700 miles. That's a lot of traveling. It sure is. It's like crossing America from one end to the other three and a half times and without cars or trains or planes, just as two feet and a boat here and there. The Apostle Paul was changed when he heard the gospel. His passion changed from destroying church to actually planting churches. And you just saw in a little bit of a cartoon all the places that he went. 
We try to even picture that on, on walking or traveling on some kind of an animal or, or sailing in a boat. But his idea was, hey, I need to get this gospel out. It absolutely changed my life, and I want others to be able to hear the good news. Well, as he did all of these church plants, he eventually was imprisoned in Rome. This happened about A.D. 60. And when he was put in prison for the very first time in Rome, he wrote the prison epistles, which were Philemon and Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians. Then he gets out of prison for a little bit, all right, and he writes two books, 1 Timothy, two letters, and Titus. 1 Timothy and Titus. Well, he then gets put into a Roman prison again about A.D. 64. No one's sure when Paul was killed, but most think it's probably about A.D. 66, A.D. 67, all right? So it was during this Roman imprisonment that he wrote 2 Timothy, right actually before he died. So let's look at how the scriptures talk about Timothy. Well, Timothy had a godly heritage. We see that in Acts 16, and we're going to see it in our text for today. He probably heard about the Savior during Paul's first missionary trip. We learn about that in Acts 14. Timothy had won the admiration of the Christians in his hometown of Lystra and in the larger town of Iconium, just a little bit north. Timothy's familiar with the Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures, made him a perfect, well, ministry partner for Paul. Since the debate in the church at this time was over circumcision, which seems a little bit odd to us, but there were so many Jews that were coming to faith and trusting Christ as Savior, and to a Jew, the mark that put them aside that showed that they were the special people of God was circumcision. So the church early in its existence in Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 15 begin arguing whether circumcision was part of the salvation experience. Some said, yes, you have to be circumcised. Others said, no, that is for a Jew. It's not for a Christian. And they settled it basically in Acts chapter 15, and you can read through that. But what was interesting is this. Circumcision was not needed to come to faith. Circumcision was not needed in order for you to become a son or a daughter of God. But it was so hotly contested that sometimes it continued to happen just so there wouldn't be arguments in the church. And what happened, and we find this in in Acts chapter 16, but Paul asked Timothy to be circumcised. Oh, so Timothy is a believer. Timothy is joining the team, and Timothy is asked by Paul, the spiritual leader, hey, I'd like you to be circumcised so that when we go into, well, Jewish communities, there's not going to be a problem. There's not going to be a problem when we go into Gentile communities either. But it's really interesting because we find out his friend, who's named Titus, who was also a pastor, and he was pastoring a church on the island of Crete. It is mentioned in Galatians chapter 2 that he was not required to be circumcised. Whoa. I think this actually tells me a lot about Timothy because in some ways he didn't shout, not fair. <laughs> uh, how come Titus doesn't have to do this and I have to do this? Well, what's the big deal? 
Well, to Paul, it was a big deal. He wanted to take away any kind of hurdle or obstacle to the gospel. He didn't want one of his main teaching team to have this bad reputation, especially when he went into a Jewish community. And so Timothy, I think, had a soft heart. He submitted to that leadership, and it was something that Paul saw was important. We know that Timothy joined Paul and Silas on Paul's second missionary trip and that he ministered alongside Paul for the duration of all that trip. Excuse me, on the second and third missionary trip. You saw that was the second missionary trip took 2,800 miles. The third missionary trip took 2,700 miles. And Timothy was with him that whole time. So they did life together. He was a team player. He was active. He was faithful. And Paul saw that he was proven in ministry. In fact, during Paul's first imprisonment, when he was in Rome and he was writing to the church at Philippi, he, of course, couldn't go. So he sent Timothy to the church in Philippi, up in Macedonia. And if you read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, you'll read something like this. The reason I'm sending Timothy is there is no one like him. He truly loves you. He loves the word. He desires deeply for you to grow. I'm going to send Timothy. I can't come. We also find in 1 Timothy 1 and in 1 Timothy 6 in the first letter that Timothy was able to deal with church conflict. He was a leader. He understood on how to deal with problems. Paul applauded his faith and his leadership and his faithfulness, his submission to authority, his team spirit, and his care for the flock. This young pastor stuck out. In fact, the way I'd like to put it is that Timothy could and should receive the baton. Now, as I mentioned, Paul was in prison and wrote Second Timothy, shortly before his death. But I want to describe this prison situation because according to tradition, Paul wrote this second letter from an underground chamber in Rome's prison system. Now, Paul had written from captivity before, but never like this. He was no longer writing from the relative comfort of a Roman cell or from rented quarters under house arrest. But he was writing, if you could picture this cell, looks pretty clean at this moment, but the only way into this cell was through the hole in the roof up there. So prisoners were lowered Prisoners stayed together, food was tossed down there, and waste materials were all over. As the apostle awaited his final trial, he thought of his closest ministry companion and wrote him a letter from here. Now, Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy about four years into his pastorate. In other words, Timothy took over the church at Ephesus, which was an unbelievably dynamic church, just so you know. Paul sent Timothy to, he thought, was the most influential church because of who Timothy was. So he had been pastoring there for four years when he finally got first Timothy written to him. A few years later, in spite of the stability and maturity of the Ephesian church, and it was, Paul wrote a second letter, and that's what we're studying, to this young leader. 
The senior member of the team wanted to encourage Pastor Timothy. And listen to this as you go through this book. And strengthen him in the face of difficulties and trials that even happen in thriving churches. Let's look at Paul's last recorded letter to Timothy. His last bit of correspondence. It's the last words we have of this amazing apostle. Every word is inspired and every word is important. Can I say that again? Every word is inspired and every word is important. So if you would, we can read together. Second Timothy, starting at chapter 1, I'm going to look at the first two verses. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. I am writing to you, Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father and Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord, give you grace and mercy and peace. We find out here that Paul was chosen to be an apostle. If you'd go back and read in Acts chapter 9, when he literally met Jesus, all right, he became blind for a while, he was led into Damascus, and God had arranged with another believer whose name was Ananias. He went to Ananias, and he said, Ananias, I want you to go, and I want you to meet this guy Saul, or Paul, Um, And and I want you to encourage him. (laughs) Well, Ananias knew the story. Uh, Saul was coming to Damascus to kill all Christians or take Christians hostage and bring them back to Jerusalem and put them in jail. Ananias is going like, hey, wait a minute, God. I'm not so sure. I like this assignment. And this is what God says to Ananias. Hey, I want you to go to Saul. I want you to encourage him because he is my chosen instrument. Whoa. Are you you serious? This is how God perceived Saul at this moment? You are my chosen instrument? instrument. You you are someone very, very special. I've got some assignments for you. You are going to go all over the world. You're going to suffer for me. I understand that. But you are the one I've chosen to be able to get this gospel out. It encourages me simply because not only did God have a plan for Saul, but God has a plan for each one of us. And it's exciting to be able to walk with God and to listen to God and have us guide us and, and, and encourage us. We talk a lot here at Crosspoint about being yoked up with Jesus, listening to Jesus. Well, Paul was yoked up, and as a result of that, well, he went all over the world sharing Paul's plan, or God's plan for Paul, was to send him out to tell everyone, not just the Jews. And, and, and this was brand new, to tell everyone about the life that God had promised when you put your faith in Jesus. Jesus died in our place to pay our debt. Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus died so you can have a relationship and I can have a relationship with him. We can be redeemed. We can be restored and we can experience abundant living now and expect eternal life as soon as we shut our eyes. In fact, 
the scriptures tell us that at least in Acts chapter 9, as soon as Paul was converted, he was baptized and began preaching. The man who was going to Damascus to incarcerate Christians, life was so different that God changed him from the inside, gave him a message so that he began preaching, and immediately was baptized. You see, in Acts, we see that's the pattern for the church, is that you get saved. And then you have an opportunity to proclaim publicly that you are a follower of Jesus. So you are baptized. We all have the privilege of sharing how God changed us from the inside out. See, that is evangelism. We talked a little bit about that last week here. But the idea is you're sharing with people that God has changed you from the inside out. And you want them to know about this amazing relationship. So baptism is a pattern for the church. It was a pattern for Paul, and it's a pattern for us. If you read in your bulletin, we're going to have a baptismal service here on February 11th. If you'd like to be part of that, if you've never been baptized and you are a believer and you'd like to obey God in this next step, hey, just talk to one of us. We'll set you up well. It is a grand time for our church. But Paul also began to tell or preach about how Jesus changed his life. It's a pattern for the church. It was a pattern for Paul, and it's a pattern for us. We meet Jesus. He changes us. We publicly proclaim our faith in Jesus by being baptized. We then begin to share wherever we go about the life that God has given us and the grace extended to us. Now, God shaped Paul into a mighty leader by first calling him by grace and then empowering him with divine strength for his daily assignments. I do need to say that we are not apostles in the same sense as Paul or the 12, but we do share common experiences with them as they trust in Christ. Now, Timothy, as we read here, is a dear son. We've already mentioned in Philippians chapter 2 that Paul said, there's no one like him. There's no one like him. I have spent many miles with him. I've seen his heart. I've seen his love. I've seen his desire to be able to teach others. And he says this, may God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord give you, talking to Timothy, Grace, mercy, and peace. What Paul is saying here is, may God give you a deeper understanding of grace. Grace is something that we get that we don't deserve, like a companionship with God and life eternal. Paul said, I want you, Timothy, to have a greater and deeper understanding of mercy. And mercy is not getting what you deserve or I deserve. We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve to be punished for our sin. We deserve that. And God says, no. Because of your faith, I want to extend mercy And then he says, I want God, the Father, and Jesus, our Lord, give you a greater understanding of peace. It's confidence in God and blessing because you're present with him. In fact, Paul's threefold greeting, grace, mercy, and peace, only appears twice in the Bible. Here and in the first letter to Timothy. You know, given Paul's circumstances, he could have stated, pain, mistreatment, and misery accompany me. After all, I'm in this ugly prison. 
But, but rather than pitying himself, the unfairness of imprisonment, or his scarred and ailing body, he focuses on Timothy and wants to encourage him. He talks about the gospel because it changed his life. The gospel is about grace, God's gift to the undeserving. The gospel is about mercy, God's gift to the guilty. God's gospel is about peace. God's gift to the restless. And then he goes on, starting in verse 3. Timothy, I thank God for you, Paul writes, the God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did. Day and or night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again, for I remember your tears when we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. He says, Timothy, I remember your genuine faith. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. Paul is so grateful for Timothy. He reminds Timothy again that, that he is serving God even in spite of being in prison, even though life is rough. He wants to remind Timothy that God is faithful in the past and will continue to be faithful even though it doesn't look good for Paul at this moment. And then Paul says this. He constantly prays for Timothy. He intercedes for Timothy. I find this so inspiring because Paul is literally in prison. He cannot go anywhere. He cannot do anything. He's not on the front lines anymore. But Paul doesn't see that as restrictive or even being hamstrung or not being able to serve our mighty God. You don't hear Paul complaining here, saying, oh, if I only was back in the trenches, if I only could encourage other churches. What you see is Paul praying for Timothy as a legitimate ministry. Prayer is not a supplement or an addition to ministry. Prayer is ministry. You know, it's interesting. As you read through the scriptures, what adjectives the scriptures use with prayer. Most often, it's earnest or being devout or devote yourself to prayer. In Ephesians chapter 6, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 12, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Daniel chapter 6, James chapter 5. And you can go on and on and on. But especially many of you are familiar with James chapter 5. When James, the brother of Jesus, says that the earnest prayer of a righteous man has powerful results. It's life-changing. How simple. And yet, just about everybody, if you were to ask, where would you like to grow in your relationship with God? How, you know, what's the next? Almost everyone says, man, you know what, I, I could pray differently. Man, I could use some help praying. Hey, I could. And, and we hear that over and over and over again. But what was so unique right here, the Apostle Paul, sitting in this dungeon, says this, I pray for you, Timothy, constantly. Well, what does that say about times of personal and corporate prayer for all of us? Paul misses 
Timothy. We see that in this opening lines. He, he, he said, when we left, we cried. Paul said goodbye to a lot of people and a lot of churches. And he never knew he would see them again. And there were other times he teared up, especially when he left the elders at the Ephesian church. But he says, Timothy, I, I love you. <laughs> I, I, I found someone who is a, a kindred spirit. Being together and serving together brought me such joy. Then Paul applauds Timothy's strong faith. Paul had traveled with Timothy. He had observed his life up close. He had found this younger man's faith to be genuine. What's so exciting really is that his faith, or this faith, was modeled and passed down under the influence of two godly women. Grandma and mom. We know that his dad was Greek and his mom was Jewish. We don't know if his dad was someone who followed Jesus, but apparently grandma and mom modeled what faith looked like in God. So Paul pumps Timothy's tires This same strong faith continues in you, Timothy. You know, what's exciting is that Timothy had a mentor, but he also had a, a godly family. And what I've noticed over the years is that it is a blessing to have a mom and a dad who walks with God and to be able to see what a godly marriage and what a relationship with God looks like. But you know what I've also found is that it's so helpful to have other godly men and women partner with your kids. To have a significant other outside of that powerful family influence to be able to encourage them to walk with God. You see, Paul's thankfulness and thoughtfulness and prayerfulness were driven by two dynamics. His peaceful condition before God, recognizing that prison was what God asked him to do at this moment, and his personal love for Timothy. If you look at verses 3 and 4, it actually helps us understand the essentials of what passing the baton looks like. And the essentials are love and prayer. This is where mentors and parents and people who are influencers, that's where they start. They love And they pray. So my question is this. Even as we open up this study. What needs to change in your life? Maybe nothing. But probably something. What needs to change. To be more of a Timothy so that you can have the baton handed off to you. Do you need help with your journey? Do you need help connecting with God? Do you need to be encouraged in your up relationship? We'd love to be able to do that, to encourage you and to walk with you and do life with you. But what's so very important is that it's just not about you or me. It's not how much Bible knowledge we know. It's not how much we listen to God. How do we help others do the same? Maybe you've been gifted with children. 
But so many opportunities are given to each one of us. How do we help others grow? Well, the first thing, again, is make sure you're growing. Make sure that your life is full. And then you talk with others, encouraging them, helping them, guiding them, directing them. So let's bow our heads. And before I pray, ask yourself the question, what needs to change? Do I need a deeper relationship with my father? Or am I at a place where I can help others grow? Where I can pass the baton on? This whole book is going to be focusing on helping you grow and helping others grow. We're going to have the master Paul who loved God with all of his heart and planted churches everywhere hand the baton off to Timothy because Paul literally was going to stop breathing in just a little bit. What a privilege. Father, we come before you and we recognize sometimes our life is just so focused about us. Meeting our needs and making sure we're happy. Father, you sent your son to die so that we might have a relationship with you. Would we see you differently, Lord? Would you draw us to yourself? Would that relationship be dynamic and life-giving? And Lord, as we do grow, would you give us the courage, the passion to hand the baton off? God, all of our training is useless if the baton drops on the track. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and